Yeah, that's that's getting cut. <laughs> that was not interesting to talk about. <laughs> Welcome to the Dan Brown Code. This is Lena. And Forrest. And welcome to episode one of the Da Vinci Code. So we're back. I did not read the acknowledgments. I um, did. Oh, let's do some background first before we get started. Oh, yeah. Wasn't this the highest selling novel aside from the Bible? Or no, that was Harry Potter. I don't know. No, I believe this is the best selling novel of all time. <sighs> I believe it's outsold any individual Harry Potter book. That is bananas. <laughs> He's dedicated it once more to his wife this time for Blythe again more than ever so he really means it this time very gross I don't have a dedication in mind huh well lucky me (laughs) published in 2003 yeah 2003 um I just did a quick scan of the acknowledgments and apparently yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) he knows someone named Sylvie Baudelaire did you I tried googling it um, and I didn't really find who I thought it was, but okay, I'm, I might do some more research to figure out who the real Sylvie Bodelok is. Okay, please do. Um, the book really gets going with its statement of fact. Oh, right. Uh, which I've annotated. Good. The first one is, this is dishonest, but true, which is that the Priory of Scion, a European secret society founded in 1099, is a real organization. That is sort of true. And then it's cleverly connected to a second sentence that is, in 1975, Paris's Bibliothèque Nationale discovered parchments known as Les Dossiers Secrets, identifying numerous members of the Priory of Scion, including Sir Isaac Newton, Botticelli, Victor Hugo, and Leonardo da Vinci. That is also true. They did discover those papers. What is not here is the third sentence that says those papers were very quickly discovered to be modern forgeries. <laughs> um, when was is, that? When were they discovered to be modern forgeries? In I, 1975? I, I want to say like in 1975. <laughs> so Yikes. both sentences that he's written here are <laughs> true. They just don't really go together. Yeah. Okay. Um, kind of a, a side note. My copy of the Da Vinci Code comes with a pamphlet called the Da Vinci Decode, which is someone who has taken it upon themselves to debunk a lot of everything in the Da Vinci Code. So I'll bring it in next time and we'll go over Did it come with it in the sense of the publisher included it or did it come with it in the far better sense of some local maniac went to the bookstore and just put a pamphlet in every copy of the Da Vinci Code? <laughs> It's not the second one. I'm sorry. To Are you sure? You. <laughs> I got my copy of the Da Vinci Code, new, freshly wrapped in cellophane, oh. with <laughs> the Da Vinci Decode attached to the <laughs> That's back. That's incredibly disappointing. I know. I know. Um, so we'll go over the Da Vinci Decode. Stay tuned for that in the near future. Uh, our second fact, or I guess third fact, but second paragraph of facts. The Vatican prelature, known as Opus Dei, is a deeply devout Catholic sect that has been the topic of recent controversy due to reports of brainwashing, coercion, and a dangerous practice known as corporal mortification. Opus Dei has just completed construction of a $47 million national headquarters at 243 Lexington Avenue in New York City. I think that's all more or less true. Okay. 
And finally, the thing that's just not true is all <laughs> descriptions of artwork, architecture, documents, and secret rituals in this novel are accurate. There's just no way. <laughs> um, I like it's it's different than in Angels and Demons, where I think it said like all all artwork, architecture, documents are true or are real or something. It didn't say descriptions of yeah. Uh... References to all works of art, tombs, tunnels, and architecture are entirely factual, as are their exact locations. <laughs> factual. <laughs> uh, so I like the switch up. Adding yeah. the description and accurate. And then I think we just get right into the prologue that happens at the Louvre Museum in Paris at 10.46 p.m. All right. Uh, I just opened with, like, Dan Brown is just a dick to people with disorders. Like... Just infallibly so. Oh, well, I, yeah. T to what extent is albinism like a disorder? I don't know what it's to call a, it. It's not a disability. Condition? It's a condition. Okay. I mean, it is a disorder in that it is... is abnormal? So, right. There's something that has, like, gone awry with the melanation of the skin, yeah. but it's and not Yeah, and that's what makes you evil about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that and the red eyes. The devil's eyes. I think most albino people don't have... Like, the pinkish red eyes. Yeah, I've only met... I had a student a while back who did have the pinkish red eyes, but most albino people that I have met have, like, blue eyes, usually. Yeah. Um. So, apparently, Dan Brown's never met an albino person. Again, he's never met anyone, so no. it's fine. Um, so, what I've done in the prologue, because what's happening here is um, the Louvre curator, uh, Jacques Saunier, is being murdered... And lest you forget that he's a museum curator, Dan Brown tells you no fewer than one, two, three, four, five, six, <laughs> seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, fifteen times in two pages. You know, just in case you don't remember that he is a curator. <laughs> Jacques Saunier is an old man. Um, he's in some distress because he's staggering through the Grand Gallery of the Louvre. And in a shocking turn of events, he just grabs a Caravaggio from the wall and rips it off. That's right. In order to, to trigger the um, alarm system. The containment security. That's right. So there's a portcullis that drops down. and <laughs> Separating him from his albino attacker, mm -hmm. um, as we're reminded. And then the attacker shoots him in the stomach and then, like, bucks off into the night. Yes. Um, after Jacques Saunier tells him something... Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a whole thing. There is an article that I think I've mentioned before in passing that directly relates to this prologue. It's it has the same name as our podcast. We're not copyright infringing because I said so. Um, but it's an article on language log called the Dan Brown Code that just goes through this opening couple paragraphs and reams it so hard <laughs> it's incredible okay um, the, we'll thing link that, it. the thing that sticks in my mind the most from it so there's a section here um only 15 feet away outside the sealed gate the mountainous the mountainous silhouette of his attacker stared through the iron bars he was broad and tall with ghost pale skin and thinning white hair his irises were pink and uh the thing you point out well that the article points out there is if it's a silhouette, you by definition cannot make out its facial features. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> so if you want more of that golden content, I recommend you read that article after you finish our uh, podcast episode and rate and review it. Yes, uh, we'll link it in the show notes. Um, <clears throat> really quick, the uh, Jacques Sonnier talks about how he was a veteran of uh, La Guerre d'Algérie. Yeah. Um, which is was the Algerian War of Independence. So I have no sympathy for this colonist, if we're being 100. That's fair. <laughs> um, my grandpa lost friends in that war. So I'm, I'm just diametrically opposed to this curator, I guess. Yeah, he seems like kind of an asshole. He's got Sene Show. We don't know what those are. Um, <laughs> I thought, did I look it up? I think it's like stewards or something. Yeah. But uh, another beautiful sentence, the fear that now gripped him was a fear far greater than that of his own death. I don't, I think it's an ugly sentence. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like it. So yeah, he gets the idea is to pass on a secret of some kind. The one that he's seems to have divulged or no, he says it's a lie. He's practiced a lot of times, I think. He and his Sinisho. Yeah. Um, But the, albino priest or whatever um the attacker has he's heard the same lie from four people so he's like he thinks it's true he thinks it's true which is the exact point of the lie right um and also he's like the final knower of this secret knowledge and so he's got to pass it on he's got to pass on the secret uh after the like centuries of this unbroken chain of knowledge which means that if robert langdon figures it out he becomes the keeper of the, the, like mm-hmm. the sole keeper of the secret knowledge, which makes me right. mad. I was just gonna say there are no translations in this book. He doesn't do the thing. Where... He sort of does. Does he? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, it's it's a little better hidden than last time. We'll get to it when we get to it. It's not nearly it's, as it's like ways... no, in it's... your face. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. So the albino attacker shoots Sonier in the stomach. But the whole timeline of this attack is unclear to me. So we start with Sonier staggering in to the grand gallery. We learn later he's come from his office where he was initially assailed. It's not clear to me what that assail entailed because he didn't appear to have been shot when he's staggering into the gallery. He's been attacked somehow. He's made it to the gallery, takes the thing off the wall, gate comes down. Attacker shoots him in the stomach and then is going to do a second kill shot, but his gun's empty. Seems weird to me that he wouldn't have had more than one bullet in his gun. It's possible that he spent those bullets on the other dudes. But, like, I don't think those attacks were, like, that recent. Like, I mean, I I think, I mean, I don't think they were, like, immediately before. I can't imagine they were all four in Paris. Okay. They might have been. Okay, so, granting that even... It's still stupid. He had another clip, and he was going to reload yes, the clip. Yes, yeah. But then he and then was like, like, whatever. You're not even worth it. You're going to die anyways. Right. And that's what allows Sonier to put together the elaborate tableau we're going to find out that he does uh, yeah. in the future. But the, the thing that allows us to pursue symbol-based crime in true Dan Brown fashion. But however it works, I think it's silly. And oh, also, I meant to look up like a ground plan of the Grand Gallery, but it seems crazy to me that there's nowhere you can hide from this portcullis where the guy can't shoot you. I mean, he could have like he could have zigzagged he, down the thing into the bathroom. I mean, he is an old man, but oh, like still though. <laughs> but like it, most museums I've been in in the center of most galleries there's like 
artifacts and tables and benches and stuff. Actually, we're told that that's the case at this gallery. God. That there's, like, statues and urns and all that. Okay, so Jacques Sonier is just, like, bad and has to die so we can have a book, I yeah, guess. Yeah, okay. Bye, Sonier. And have a book we do, because now it's time for chapter one. <laughs> it's 12.32 a.m., and Robert Langdon is awakened, awoken. Um, yeah. Um, he's awoken by a, what is it, like a tinny... Uh, so yeah, it's a phone tinny telephone ringing. ringing. Yeah, he's in, in Paris. He's in the Hotel Ritz, Paris. Right. Um. Very quickly, uh, he's trying to remember where, where he is, and he his eyes focus on a flyer on his bedside table for his own event, um, which is the American University of Paris proudly resent, presents uh, an evening with Robert Langdon, professor of religious symbology. Harvard University. Langdon groaned. Tonight's lecture. So we could have lost all of that, right? Like that whole... Oh, yes. Like, he's... Langdon still felt fuzzy. And then... Or you could just remove fuzzy. Langdon groaned. Tonight's lecture. Like, we don't need to know that you sleep with a flyer of your own event next to your head. It's very gauche. Um, (laughs) And then shortly after, he's still like... Oh, so he's told that... the phone call is because he has a very important visitor and he's like, well, I don't care. I'm going to sleep more. This sucks. <laughs> Cause he's assuming it's just someone who wants to yell at him about his very, uh, uh, controversial, controversial lecture. Also, people have just been like knocking down his door ever since his involvement with angels and demons. Mm-hmm. So he's just over it. And now that we're eight pages into the book, it's the first time that Robert Langdon knows better than women. <laughs> Uh, so we get back to his physical description now that we're in a new book and, um, there's a dark stubble shrouding his strong jaw and dimpled chin around his temples. The gray highlights were advancing and making their way deeper into his thicket of coarse black hair. Although his female colleagues insisted the gray only accentuated his bookish appearance or appeal, Langdon knew better. Women love Robert Langdon. But he knows better than them. They shouldn't, they shouldn't shouldn't think he's hot. Uh, yeah, I don't think we got strong jaw and dimpled chin in the last book, so we're getting a little bit m- a, like a more complete picture, mm-hmm. a very non-Tom Hanks picture. Yeah, we're, definitely I mean, more brother from uh, Everybody Loves Raymond, if anything. <laughs> I will look him I, up. I still, I, I know who you're talking about. I know what you're saying. I just strongly resist this, this interpretation <laughs> of Robert Langton. He does not look like um, Robert. Robert, Barone. yeah. <laughs> Last month, Boston Magazine listed Robert Langdon as one of that city's top 10 most intriguing people. This is by far the worst part of the section. And Robert Langdon simultaneously loves it, but pretends he hates it. Yeah. Yeah. He's talking, it's like, Langdon hopes she doesn't mention all of these things. Yeah, we're, we're now flashing back to his introduction at his lecture this evening. There is like a boring one written up, but like... The lady introducing is like, oh, but one of the students just gave me a far more interesting introduction. This article written about you in Boston Magazine. Well, an intriguing introduction because he was listed as one of Boston's most intriguing people. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I feel like we should just read what she says. No? Yeah, go for it. Okay. 
And Mr. Langdon's refusal to speak publicly about his unusual role in last year's Vatican conclave certainly wins him points on our intrigometer. Would you like to hear more? And the crowd applauds. And he says, somebody stop her. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then she continues... Although Professor Langdon might not be considered hunk handsome like some of our younger awardees, this 40-something academic has more than his share of scholarly allure. His captivating presence is punctuated by, unusual, by an unusually low baritone speaking voice, which his female students describe as chocolate for the ears, to which I wrote, puke. The um, hall erupted in laughter. We don't really hear about his voice at all in Angels and Demons until that weird scene yeah, in the... Where it uh, mentions his deep voice. Right. Um, he knew what came next. Some ridiculous line about Harrison Ford and Harris Tweed. I have an objection to that line. (laughs) Yeah, as do I. So, like, clearly that line is to draw the Indiana Jones parallel, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But I think that Dan Brown, his excitement of having come up with the line Harrison Ford and Harris, Harris Tweed neglects to mention like to think of the fact that we see indiana jones raring tweed yeah the first time we see him yeah so it's just like indiana jones <laughs> it's indiana jones in the classroom is what robert langdon looks like because like harrison ford and harris tweed isn't like a clever twist on indiana jones it's just literally indiana jones right that's right that's right that's my objection i hate it i hate it so much it's just and also harrison ford in harris tweed like when he was indiana jones wasn't like approaching 50 like robert langdon so you know (laughs) nor was he like uh robert langdon is doing wearing a burberry turtleneck oh god he's wearing a turtleneck with his tweed suit because he sucks (laughs) (laughs) um but robert langdon because this is the first time he's felt bold enough to wear his signature tweed after the article uh cuts her off before she can read it because he doesn't want to be embarrassed more and he's like Oh, Boston Magazine clearly has a gift for fiction. He turned to the audience with an embarrassed sigh. And and you know he just loves this shit. Absolutely, 100%. He loves it. And uh, the rest of the chapter, basically, phone rings again. His guest gets sent up regardless of his instructions because his guest is from the judiciary police. And uh, it's like the French FBI. And so Langdon doesn't have a choice. And they show him a picture just like in angels and demons and it's a mutilated corpse just like angels and demons That's right. but this time the corpse did it to itself also um i don't know when we meet olivetti oh we meet him on the phone right in angels and demons that sounds right yeah here his uh companion or spirit guide if you will um is a tall wiry no-nonsense cop much like olivetti do we learn his name uh yeah this is such of the sea uh, Lieutenant Jérôme Collet. Collet, yeah. Um, um, really quick, he says something about nearly, nearly losing his life in Vatican City, uh, which to which I would like to amend. It, it's above Vatican City that he nearly lost his life. Well, he almost lost his life, I think, technically in the river right next to Vatican City. Oh, oh I guess he was in the archive and nearly Oh, yeah, he, lost he almost died life. a few times in that book. Oh, oh yeah. and, in, and outside Vatican City in Rome at the church where he was in the fire. That's right. Man, Man. Robert Landon went through some times. (laughs) He's lived a life. Uh, A mile away from Langdon's hotel, uh, the hulking albino, who we now learned is named Silas, is going into the uh, Opus Dei residence in Paris. Is it Silas or Silas? 
I say it, Silas. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think it's, I think I want to say that it's originally a Hebrew name, so I don't know how that would be pronounced. But whatever I, the character in Weeds with that name is called Silas, <laughs> if that's any help. Is there someone in Weeds named Silas? I think I one of you're... Nancy's two sons might be named Silas. Okay. He died in Macedonia, the original Silas. Okay. So there you go. That's all I know. Do you know how to pronounce it? Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't learn that. Hold on. I'll find out right now. Wikipedia, come through. No, this is taking too long. Forget it. Okay. Well, Silas just to, to confuse matters further, around his legs, Silas wears a Silice or Calique uh, belt. <laughs> Silice? Uh, a ceviche that cuts into his flesh, and yet his soul still sings, because we learned that part of opus day's whole deal is a uh, belief that pain can be purifying mm-hmm. and uh so he's is he in a, in a car here or no he's no, going no, into he's his, in his he's going into his cell at the uh opus day residence in paris yeah he gets a phone call from his uh like from janice boss. yeah from janice um who tells him like good job doing the murder uh Time to do some other murders or yep. go get the keystone. Yes. There's this like uh, MacGuffin called the keystone. We don't know what it does. Yeah. We don't know why we want it. But that's what he killed those four people for. They all told him that the keystone was in the same place. Mm-hmm. And so the teacher, and the, the Janice this time is called the teacher, right. uh, is like, ah, oh, excellent. You know where it is. You must go get it. And it's at the Eglise saint Sulpice. That's right. And then he's like, how do I get into the church? And the guy's like, no worries, I'll help you out. And then it says, with the confident tone of a man of enormous influence, <laughs> the teacher explained what was to be done. So we're back to telling and not showing, which is dope, you know? Especially yeah. since very soon after, um, what's the name of the of the uh, nun who lives there? S- Sandrine. Sandrine. Yeah, Sandrine. Um, Sandrine is like, wow, you must have friends in high places. Like, we could have just skipped this yeah. and then gone to the whatever. Sandrine was the name of the like incredibly horny girl in the videos we had to watch in my last French class. <laughs> <laughs> just in case you're wondering, <laughs> she guessed what she video- needed. I mean, sort of. I think at the end there was a breakup because she started going with one, with one guy, but then he sucked, and so like there was a whole chapter where they were breaking up. And mm. then in a later chapter, she started dating the American exchange student who's our entryway into the entire world of Nice. Got it. Um, and then he goes back to America and leaves her lonely. Is Terrible. it really her fault at this point? Like, No, I don't think so. No. <laughs> uh, and now we get a description once more of a drive. Uh, well, he, he beats himself with a whip thing first. Yeah, Silas uses the discipline to uh, whip himself. Yeah, to cleanse himself of the murders that he has done. Although they were in the name of God, but, um, what's it called? It's a absolution requires sacrifice. So. Yeah, and I guess this is probably as good a time as any to, like, this whole book involves some pretty serious vilification of Opus Dei, which is a real organization, um, and, like, is certainly pretty right-wing in a lot of its interpretations of Catholic doctrine, even along the spectrum of interpretations of Catholic doctrine, which skews pretty right-wing in general. But, like, with a few kind of exceptions noted, the actual, like, 
prescriptions for the corporal mortification are A, limited to a very small subset of the community, and B, the Silice belt, I think is not even really prescribed, although some members wear it, and it's not this horrible hooked thing that like actually makes you bleed. It's just like a little chain with some bumps that are uncomfortable. And then the discipline, which is the thing you can whip yourself with, is not as described in this book, this heavy knotted cable that just tears you up. It's like shoelaces, mm. kind of. And and like the other common practice like sleeping without a pillow and things that like are a bummer and like weird, but aren't like actively evil in the <laughs> <laughs> Just are you to, a, to, you're Opus Dei apologist for us? A little bit. Uh, <laughs> when, when, I, when I first read this book was in a phase of my life where I was like, I was a new convert to the Catholic Church and was very devout about it. And mm. I was very angry at this book. I spent a long time on Google reading debunkings of this book. Um, Did you read the, da- the Da Vinci Decode? No, but okay. I read a bunch of things like it, I think. Um, and so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Criticize Opus Day for good reasons, not stupid ones. Yeah. Uh, so chapter three opens with, oh, real quick, so far the plot is almost identical to Angels and Demons. Yeah. Do you agree? Okay. Yes, and now we're getting a description of a drive, much like in Angels and Demons, except this time the drive is actually scenic, as yeah. opposed to the drive from Cambridge to Logan Airport. And because we're in France, we're not in Alfa Romeos anymore, we're in Citroëns. Citroën ZXs, or... <laughs> uh, ZX. <laughs> ZX. <laughs> Citroën ZX. Anyway. So Langdon's in France. Oh, he's remembering Vittoria. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So they haven't seen each other since, like, shortly after the last book ended. Right. As soon as Robert Langdon flew home, they had plans to, like, meet every six months in different romantic locations. Um, but they never do it. Yeah, because she's got a job. And she's like, uh, I've moved to underwater over here to do my yeah. entanglement physics. So... Whatever. Uh, can we do a read aloud of the dialogue about the Eiffel Tower? Oh, I mean, we can. <laughs> <laughs> the Eiffel Tower, Langdon suspected, would have made their list. Sadly, he lost his Victoria in a na- noisy airport in Rome more than a year ago. Did you mount her? <laughs> the agent asked, looking over. Langdon glanced up, certain he had misunderstood. Oh, are we not doing the flavor text? No, I think, I think we text? Okay. He had misunderstood, I beg your pardon? She is lovely, no? The Eiffel Tower, have you mounted her? (laughs) (laughs) And I like that. (laughs) I think that part's pretty funny. (laughs) I mean, it's a a direct translation from the French, so I guess. Um, Uh, No, I haven't climbed the tower. (laughs) Then it says France is a country renowned for machismo, womanizing, and diminutive, insecure leaders like Napoleon and Pepin the Short. Who was not French. He was Frankish. He was born in, like, modern-day Germany or Belgium or something. But, like... (laughs) They also had... If you're going to call Pepin the Short a French leader, then you also have to call Charlemagne, Charles the Great, who was, like, 6'4 or some shit. Also, again, Napoleon was average of average height. He wasn't short. It was He was measured in inches of the king, which was a different measurement standard to the standard measurement for the normal people. That's right, and it was a rumor spread by the British to make them, like... And he liked to have tall royal guards, because wouldn't you like to have tall royal guards? I I think so. So he was always next to people who were taller than him, making him look shorter. Napoleon was normal (laughs) height, guys. (laughs) Welcome to the Napoleon (laughs) Code. Um, Um, 
There's a really beautiful piece of writing here. Okay, go. Outside the car, the pale wash of a halogen headlight skimmed over the crushed gravel parkway. Here's where it gets good. <laughs> the rugged whir of the tires intoning a hypnotic rhythm. I hate intoning It doesn't there. mean anything. <laughs> a hypnotic whir doesn't have a rhythm. It's just a whir. And then we just get a description of the Louvre, basically. Right. Of what you can see from the Tuileries Garden. And I am going to speak in an obnoxious French accent for the majority yeah. of this book. I mean, did you uh, not hear my reading of the French policeman's lines? It's <laughs> great. It was um, comparable to Jake's Lumiere. In, <laughs> in I forgot about that. Um, so one of the descriptions the Louvre we get, Forrest, math cop, uh, <laughs> despite the estimated five weeks it would take a visitor to properly appreciate the 65,300 pieces of art in this building, most tourists, blah, 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 blah. Five weeks? So even assuming you're awake 24-7, that adds up to 45 seconds per piece of art. So that's not properly appreciating by any definition, <laughs> especially not if you are like a normal human who would die if you were awake for 24-7 for five, five weeks. weeks so that's what I would say about that. Better to do the Louvre in chunks, you guys. Don't overextend yourselves if you end up in paris and if you do have to do it all at once um and you're away 24 7 it's still going to take you more than five weeks to properly appreciate everything and by the end of it because 45 seconds <laughs> is not enough time to appreciate much of anything right aside from nope i mean <laughs> this book maybe like mm -hmm. if you spend more than 45 seconds appreciating it, it's gonna go you downhill know. uh we're going to spend several episodes in this book that are going to be over an hour long each. <laughs> uh, really quick, here's my, maybe my favorite paragraph in this section. As Langton stood alone and watched the, the departing taillights, he realized he could easily reconsider, exit the courtyard, grab a taxi, and head home to bed. And I was like, maybe you should. Just just go home. Yeah. You know, nothing, nothing good comes of the rest of this. Mm-mm. Um, he's going to, we learn he's on his way to meet with the head or the chief or the captain of the judicial police, whose name is Bezul Fash. Fash. Okay. I have something to say about yeah. that. Okay. Really quick. Fash, uh, spelled F-A-C-H-E. Mm -hmm. And if you add an accent, an accent, yeah. it says it's Fashé, which means angry. <laughs> Which I love because he's just like a mad dude. At first, I like was really hoping that that was the only explanation for it, but it is a real last name. It, it is. descends from Vash. It just means his ancestors were cow herders or something. Well, I'll tell which you is what. Disappointing. He's compared to an angry ox very many times. Well, his nickname is the Bull. That's right. That's right. And as you may recall from angels and demons our cops there also had animal nicknames because in dan brown's world every cop has an animal nickname yes! <laughs> and I, the, I i went back to angels and demons because i was like i was fairly convinced in my mind that one of them was the bull but he was not he was the bear bear and then the snake viper yeah the, the viper olivetti was the viper and um i think rocher it's was funny the bear yeah I think it's funny how similar bulls are to bears in Dan Brown's mind. Well, I mean, one's an up market, one's okay, a down market. Okay, Forrest. <laughs> I'm, I work in finance now. <laughs> um, um, yeah, but he's like stout and like mad and like serious, much like a bear. So in this section, the craziest thing Dan Brown does is he makes two very boring pages where he like has to run through for us that 
the Louvre pyramid was built at the instruction of this one governor of Paris, whose nickname was the Sphinx, because he liked Egyptian stuff. Mm -hmm. And Uh, he has to talk about the pyramid for a while, and then he has to tell us the origin story for Bezu Fash's nickname, all so that Dan Brown can do this line. Now he was standing in front of a transparent pyramid built by the Sphinx, waiting for a policeman they called the Bull. (laughs) I'm trapped in a Salvador Dali painting, he thought. It's bad. It's not even a good payoff. It's, it's the worst. Is, is Salvador Dali known for bulls or pyramids or sphinxes? He is not. He is known for melting clocks and like giraffe things with long spindly legs. That's right. That's, that's, I think they're elephants with long spindly Whatever. legs. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> what are elephants if not giraffe things? I, I put it to you. <laughs> um, chapter four has the word sepulchral in it again. He likes it. <laughs> he likes that word, which... It's made me hate it. I've never like even had uh, an opinion on sepulchral, and now I have a big one, big opinion. So I think I still like it, just not when Dan Brown uses it. I talk about a lot of words. <laughs> um. So Fushay think hates the. Uh, oh, sorry, Fush. Captain Zuby Zuby Zu Fush <laughs> uh, hates the pyramid, and they're like not friends because a scar on the face of Perry. Yeah, that's right. And um, they're, what, in, what's going on here? Are they in an elevator yet, or not quite? Uh, they eventually go to an elevator. <laughs> okay. I think it might be time to pick up the pace a little bit. Yeah, um, basically, he's like, how do you know the Sonier? And he's like, oh, I don't, we were going to meet tonight, but I used his writings in writing my new book yeah. about the Divine Feminine. And uh, Fash is like, I don't like this Divine Feminine you mm-hmm. speak of. Right, because he is a devout Catholic, and he wears the the kind of the crux gemata. Yes, crux gemata. It's which, a cross with jewels. Right, um, and it says uh, he had not expect Langdon had not expected the captain of the French police to broadcast his religion so openly. And I just want to take a moment to note that I wrote my first thesis on the uh, hypocrisy of religious display in public spaces for public servants uh like the hijab versus wearing a cross or, oh, yeah. or crux jamata or and so i you know i had a moment of clarity and i was like i know all about that and then my understanding of france in the last like 10 or 20 years is that like the outward religiosity of most of the leaders was like on a decline um so of the leaders yes because yeah. that's like the big public face, but on like postal workers and teachers um, and other public servants, not in the slightest. And they're like postal offices that like display a cross like next to the clock, you know, which is, uh, if you're going to be touting laicite as one of your values. Yeah. Like I I know France is very hypocritic on On all issues in and around um, religious wear and iconography. Yeah. But like my, I guess, outside understanding of it had been that they were coming from a place of secularism rather than well the thing is like on paper they are yeah right but uh in practice they're like well that's conspicuous and uh, the law says yeah. conspicuous religiosity right yeah. which is racist yes yeah. well yes clearly <laughs> i'm not going to argue that point in the slightest <laughs> Uh, we can get into it on my own podcast, <laughs> Theses That Lena Has Written. Um, okay, where were we? Uh, landing is claustrophobic in an elevator. Yeah, he gets... He convinces himself, the elevator is a perfectly safe machine. Uh, 
And then he never really believes it because it's a tiny metal box hanging in an enclosed shaft. And it's so stupid. It's very stupid. Has, does he never take elevator? I guess that's why he's so fit. Uh, <laughs> he takes the stairs. Yeah. Takes the stairs, baby. I'm going to Yeah, so this, this chapter does contain the thing I was talking about where Dan Brown goes back to translating ways, but a little more subtly. Mm-hmm. So, Monsieur, Fash called out, and the men turned. Ne nous dérangez pas sous aucun prétexte, entendu? Everyone inside the office nodded their understanding. Langdon had hung enough ne pas déranger signs on hotel room doors to catch the gist of the captain's orders. Fash and Langdon were not to be disturbed under any circumstances. I just, I just put together the significance <laughs> of that sentence of Robert having had to put those I thought the that store. too but I think he's just I mean cuz he was alone in his hotel room tonight so I well, think tonight. I think he just always puts don't disturb signs on his hotel room cuz he likes to sleep in after his lectures I mean I do that anytime I stay in a hotel too Yeah exactly yeah. I don't think Langdon's like he's got I don't, I don't think Lang- I don't think Langdon fucks <laughs> <laughs> Is what I'm saying Oh <laughs> Um, this next chapter, I think we can do a pretty quick hit on. Yeah. At least I can. Uh, Ar- uh was Aringarosa? Bishop Aringarosa. He's the head of Opus Dei. Uh, and he's going to go onto a plane, and he wants to be incognito, so he's not going to wear his, um, his purple. purple cincture, but he is going to wear his 14-karat gold bishop's ring with purple amethyst, large diamonds, and hand-tooled mitre crozier applique which only those with a keen eye would notice this incredibly gaudy Super Bowl <laughs> ring this asshole's wearing. <laughs> Super Bowl ring. Um, so he gets in a taxi of some kind, or not a taxi, like a nice, and actually yeah. like a nice car, a uh, town car, and it takes him to a plane, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, on here, and he talks about like the bad um reputation that opus day has yeah, there's and... an opus day awareness network odan which actually does exist in real life that is a watchdog group that likes to publish things about how terrifying opus day is okay um and then here's my favorite sentence i found it five months ago the kaleidoscope of power had been shaken and Aringarosa was still reeling from the blow yikes yikes mixed metaphors yeah you forever. don't shake kaleidoscopes kaleidoscope of power (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty bad um also bishop aringarosa is just like alec baldwin in that he ignores airlines regulations on when you can't use cell phones um Um, i want to make a set of metaphor dice for dan brown (laughs) you just you throw them and you've got a metaphor all right and um, then before the chapter's over, we check back in with Silas, and he's going to have to go do more crime. Um, and he, I thought we were done with weirdly sexual assassins, but we aren't, because Silas was feeling an aroused anticipation that he had not felt since his previous life, and it sucks. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a welcome change from the rapiness of the last one. Um, yeah, no, he just gets off on pain. It's fun. Yeah. It's very French of him. Oh, yes. Very French. So we're in chapter six. Uh, so yeah, he talks to the teacher who is like the top guy. Yeah. And normally Aringarosa and Silas are buddies, but the teacher is acting as an intermediary between the two of them right now. Right. Um, so chapter six, um, there's some more Vittoria talk, and I said, can we just forget about Vittoria and move on to I the mean, next European Robert, piece Robert of Robert Langdon clearly, clearly has. <laughs> um, 
Um, Although she has awakened, like he's like done with Victoria, and I was like, I guess we're never getting together because she has a job. But it awakened inside of him a longing for a feminine influence in his life, right? Because he's like, she's never gonna come live in Boston, and I was like, you're yeah. damn right, she's not. She's got better she's, shit to yeah, do. Yeah, she's using sci- satellites to track manta ray migration. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so they're on the crime scene. They're at the crime scene. They're on the scene at the crime. Yeah. Um, Makaravaji is on the floor. Um, like the, shocked. The, the curator is sprawled out and he's got a pentagram drawn in blood on his stomach and he's got uh, a UV pen in one hand and he's written some crazy shit on like near him. Right. Yes. Um, and it's. It says a bunch of numbers, which I'm not going to read to you. Yeah. So, well, f- before we know anything of that, we know just the pentacle in blood. And he's laying spread eagled. And Robert Langdon says, oh, that's just a, to amplify the first pentagram. It's definitely a pentagram. And the stance is to reduplicate that same shape. And it's a symbol of the divine feminine because of Venus and blah, 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 blah. It goes and on for not, quite some And time. not devil worship the way you might be misled to think by Hollywood films. They're misinterpreting the symbol, which, like, I don't think you can misinterpret the symbol. You can just reappropriate it for a different thing, which is what they've done. Right. In the same, like, yeah. Anyways. And, um, there's a lot of talk about the feminine divine and, um, like, goddess cults and all that. And I'm just saying, like the da vinci code more like the vagina code (laughs) (laughs) nice got him uh it's like ishmael did you read that book no it's got a talking gorilla and it's 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 a mostly debunked so or social science thing but it has some good ideas in it okay it really blew my mind in high school all right um we get some bad etymology about the word villain that just amplifies dan brown's fear of the church when actually Villain comes from Villanus, which was a medieval French, well, originally from a Latin word meaning one who lived in a villa. By the time of medieval France, it just comes from people who live in the countryside and like villages. And then in the way rich people are want to do, the English rich people who were speaking French because of the Norman invasion started using villain in the same way people use peasant today to imply someone who's like, oh, low class and of... of patrician, not patrician, the other one. Plebeian. Yeah. yeah, like those kinds of words. And so it comes to just mean eventually today's meaning of villain as like an actively evil person. It's not the churches being afraid of the pagans in the village. It's just rich people hating poor people. Um, but Dan Brown isn't willing to do anything that doesn't vilify the church. That's right. That's a fucking right. institution I don't even like am a, I'm not even a part of it anymore I only get weird defensive in the context of Dan Brown books <laughs> it's, well, done, it's done a lot of bad stuff in I the mean, world because it's, it's out of ignorance right yeah. like being incensed against, against the church for real reasons yeah, makes sense yeah dislike it for good reasons not dumb ones but yeah spreading misinformation and like yeah stupid 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 anyways um so at this point Fash is like actually I think he drew it in blood not because, as Langdon says, it's the only thing he has to write with, but actually to encourage us as a policeman to use blacklight. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. And so then he shines his blacklight and uh, unveils some writing and some shapes drawn on the ground. We don't learn what it means yet, I don't think, though. No, we don't. But Colet <laughs> is in an office listening in, and he's there's clearly some ulterior motives to having brought Langdon here. Mm-hmm. We'll learn all about them soon. Yeah. In the meantime, we're uh, going to meet Sister Sandrine Biel. Who is a 
fucking How do you G. pronounce that last name? Uh, where is it? Uh, Sandrine B.A. She lives in the Eglise Saint-Sulpice. Mm-hmm. She sleeps in the choir loft because she doesn't like her room. <laughs> I get it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you probably get into some weird shit when you're a nun. Yeah, you just live alone <laughs> in the church and you're like, well, my room's super haunted. Yeah. So I'm not going to live there. Um, so she's woken up in the middle of the night by a phone call, as everyone is. No one ever gets a phone call at a normal mm-hmm. time in a Dan Brown book. And he's like, look, the head of Opus Day has a friend who is coming to see the church at night and he only has a little bit of time so you gotta let him in and she's like god damn it but okay yeah (laughs) so in this chapter the main thing of note for me is we learn that their ascension to grace was jump-started in 1982 when pope john paul ii unexpectedly elevated them to a personal prelature of the pope so I can't wait. The Dan Browniverse has Pope John Paul II. (laughs) In our universe, he died... 1999. In 1999. So after the publication of Angels and Demons, or in the same year as publication of Angels and Demons, around the same time as Angels and Demons was published. Wait, 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 when when did John Paul? I'm not sure. Um, I think it was after 99. I think it was like like 2000s. But in any case... 2005. Okay. But in any case... I think it's the Pope described as just having died in angels and demons is sort of similar to John Paul II in that he's like a fairly well-loved Pope. Although I think it describes him as being kind of liberal, which John Paul wasn't really. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to figure out what the relationship between the Dan Brown universe and our universe is based on this information. We learned that there is a Pope John Paul II who up until 1982 was doing everything that our Pope John Paul II did. Right. But I think he's a different Pope than the one that died in angels and demons. (laughs) I mean, as of the publication of this book, Pope John Paul II was still alive. Yeah. So (laughs) what is the truth, Dan? Yeah. I, I, I've, I've another question to, ask whenever i can't believe we didn't go to the dan brown talk he gave for 60 dollars at the theater here in november or whatever oh god we, we really could have, I, could have, I could have had such a good q a <laughs> you bring out your timeline <laughs> i'm just gonna monopolize the entire thing the, excuse me the q a is just for me i have a lot of questions for you mr brown let me begin <laughs> we should next time there's an opportunity we should wear our matching shirts and just go in and like between the two of us yeah. alternate for the whole night. Because um, I actually do want to know about this. Like, a lot of yeah. things I can let slide at this one, I cannot. I mean, when when we first started this podcast, I found the marketing website for the Dan for the Da Vinci Code, which included a link where you could email Robert Langdon. And so I tried to send him an email with some questions I had for him that were largely based around the uh, temporality of his adventures and like how quickly they happened. And like, is he really like 65 year old now doing his adventures or what? And uh, the email address isn't active anymore. <laughs> God damn it. It bounced back to me. Um, I was hoping that was how it's going to develop a friendship and fall in love with like a marketing intern at random house or whatever. <laughs> it's still possible. God, your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Uh, so Sandrine has issues with Opus Dei because they're extremely 
conservative and have backwards ideas on women and yeah. uh, demand that women do more corporal punishment than men do because of original sin. And she's a low-key feminist yeah. hero. And they have to be separated inside Opus Dei. Um, like the headquarters. Residences. Like the men come in the front and the women come in yeah. the side door. And then apparently they have to clean the men's rooms while the men are in church. Yeah. Garbage. It's the separation of them, that's just medieval monastery stuff. I don't yeah. really have a problem with that in the context of housing for religious. Sister Sandrine is a modern woman. Yeah. I mean, she lives in, a, I think, probably gender-segregated residence. Yeah. I, th- I don't think it's a residence. I think she lives alone here, no? Yeah. It seems <laughs> like she's just puttering around this church on her own. It's true. Good for her. Anyways, now we're back to Langdon, and now we learn what the uh, what's written on the floor um, I'm not going to read the numbers, but it says, Oh, draconian devil. Oh, lame saint. And then there's also inscribed around Sonier's body a circle and a square. Circumscribed. Did I say inscribed? Mm-hmm. Shit. He's inscribed um, within the circle. Yes. Um, <laughs> geometry. And so then Robert Langdon instantaneously knows that this is a reference to the Vitruvian man, not an amplification of the pentacle because symbols change depending on their context. Yeah. What was the thing in the last book? Oh, uh, orientation, 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 orientation. The first rule of symbology. Um, uh, he talks about the Vitruvian man being one of like the most, the most famous Da Vinci sketch, which it is. And he says that it appears on posters, mouse pads, and t-shirts around the world. And I saw a dude in a Vitruvian man t-shirt at the Las Vegas airport this weekend. So it's true. I was going to object and say that self-portrait sketch might be more famous. I feel like I see it a lot. I see the Vitruvian man so much though. Okay. I don't know. I'll fight you over it. (laughs) Um... And it's it, an, and oh. like the the o draconian devil o lame saint thing is why Fash this whole time has been more convinced the pentacles a devil worship thing than a divine feminine thing. That's right, and it's in English, and Langdon mm-hmm. uh, knew that Sonier spoke impeccable English, um, and isn't like quite sure why it's in English, right? Yeah, so Fash is like. What is the most strange thing about this message? Every French person in this book is going to sound the same, guys. I'm not sorry about it. Um, And Langdon's like, I think it's the use of the word draconian. I don't understand why he'd reference this uh, 8th century BC political figure. And then Fash is like, that is the most strange thing to you? And then everyone's like, oh, I guess it's in English. And he's like, oui. Uh, I guess he's Parisian, so oui. Um, You sound like... Steve Martin's Inspector Clouseau. Uh, the Frenchest person to ever exist, yeah. <laughs> next to Pepe Le Pew. Because of um, Jake's Lumiere. Yes, and Jake's <laughs> Lumiere. We never quite figure out yet why it's in English, but it's aroused Fash's suspicions. And then he's like, I think he was trying to pinpoint the person who murdered him. And Langdon's like, well... You said the person who murdered him at first attacked him in his office, which he opened to him, so presumably he knew him. And then, why wouldn't he just write the murderer's name? And then Fash goes, exactement. And we uh, are cut off there for the moment, I think. Um, I, I want to take this moment to say that I think of um, David Suchet's Poirot when I read about <laughs> Fash. I like that. <laughs> So if that, if you know who that is, or just Google it. It's Belgian. <laughs> I know he's Belgian. Uh, that might help during this podcast to have like an image. 
Um, oh, and at the very end, right, as Fash is about to do whatever cool thing he's about to do to own Robert Langdon, Cole is still just, like, listening in and uh, kind of jacking off to how much he loves <laughs> Fash's uh, methods here. Fash will do what no one else dares. And then there's a pun that I meant to Google if it worked in French, because I don't think it does. What is it? Um... Uh, see, the problem is I don't think you'll know because it uses church terminology. Probably not. Yeah. So when the Pope visited Paris a few years back, Fash had used all his muscle to obtain the honor of an audience. A photo of Fash with the Pope now hung in his office. The papal bull, the agent secretly called it. And a papal bull is a kind of declaration the Pope can make. And it is, I believe, named for the bit of lead that hangs off of it to seal the manuscript. I don't know if they still use those bits of lead, but they did in medieval times. Mm-hmm. And those are called bully, B-U-L-L-A-E, bulli, I guess, in Latin. And so we call them papal bulls in English, but bull doesn't mean bull in French. So... And I assume papal bulls are still something bull because the Latin is bulli. Bull, bull papad. Yeah, and bull does not mean bull in French. Right. So using his nickname as a clever thing to go with papal bull is not a valid French pun. <laughs> um, you're right, and I'm I'm sorry. Gotcha, Robert Lang, <laughs> Dan Brown. You son of a bitch. <laughs> okay, real quick mixed metaphor at the end uh, of chapter eight. <laughs> Fash was keeping his prey. On a very tight leash, because you know how you do with your prey. Mm-hmm. Wisely so. Robert Langdon had proven himself one cool customer. <laughs> Why do you write this way, Dan he's so, Brown? He's not good at it. What? Do you, what do you do? <laughs> okay, Sophie's on the scene. Yep. Now, right at the moment of Fash's exciting uh, interrogation, uh, he's interrupted by a cryptographer. Uh, Agent Niveau. Agent Sophie Niveau. And, um... What does... De chiffres? De, yes. I don't know. I didn't look it up. Okay, cool. Uh, de ch- so chiffre means... I think it's, um, like, decryptor. Because okay. chiffre oh, means, sense. like, cipher. Cipher? Yeah. Okay. So, and Uz is the female, uh, like... I know that. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. How else would I describe chanteuses? <laughs> Use You're your right. head, Lena. <laughs> so she's on the scene. She's not wearing shorts. She's wearing no. uh, an oversized what white sweater. Yeah, it's like a it's like a long cream sweater that like goes down to her knees. Yeah, and leggings, and she's got uh, auburn hair or burgundy hair, I guess, and she has olive green eyes. So there yes. you go. Um. So she's moving down the corridor towards them with long, fluid strides and a haunting certainty to her gait. Um, the first <laughs> picture we get of Vittoria Vetra in Angels and Demons yes. is that her legs are driving with fluid efficiency. So Dan Brown just loves describing the weird-ass ways that women walk. He loves. He loves fluid women. Um yeah, and also, kind of like Vittoria Vetra, um, she's hot, but like not 
overdone hot. She has an unembellished beauty and genuineness that radiated a striking personal confidence. But it does say, you know, in an office of middle-aged men, an attractive young woman always drew eyes away from the work at hand. So she's yeah. she's attractive, right? But, like, again, she's also not a Stacy because unlike the wayfish cookie-cutter blondes that adorned Harvard dorm room walls, this woman was healthy. <laughs> Yeah. Also, Dan Brown like hates blonde women. Like Ooh, he man, has like he a disdain. Like we have them. to find out what Blythe Brown looks like. <laughs> How's it spelled? B L Y T H E. She's blonde. <gasps> <laughs> oh my god. Oh. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, the woman in the picture Lena has shown me. I can confirm is blonde. Is blonde. Very strange. Anyway. Where were we? Sophie's like doing some secret agent shit. So she's directly countermanded fascist orders not to be interrupted. And so she says that she broke the numeric code so she can talk to fascist, and that's why she came to interrupt them. Mm -hmm. And then also the U.S. Embassy has a message for Langdon. Here, check it on this. Here's the number to call to check it. And uh, offers... Langed in her phone, but then Fash is like, no, use my phone. It is encrypted. Um, and so Langdon goes into the corner to do that while Fash is talking with Sophie. Mm -hmm. And Langdon's confused because he calls the number and it's Sophie's answering machine. And he looks over at her and she's like, no, it's fine. I, uh, I, I can't do a woman French accent. Fuck. Where is it? Where is she? Uh, let's like, I don't know. It's where he answers the thing. No, that, that's the right number. There we but go. But she has actually, actually, actually. She has an Anglo-French accent. A muted Anglo-Franco accent. Yeah, that, that, like, her, that worms its way around vowels or something. Yeah, her words curve richly around her accent. You know how words <laughs> curve around accents. Yeah. Caution, curves ahead. hey yo. Hey, yeah. Um... <laughs> And Rose like, I think it's the wrong number. And she's like, no, he's right. Um, you punched the code in I gave there. It's the three numbers below the phone number. And so he punches it in and uh, starts hearing, Mr. Langdon, do not react to this message. Just listen calmly. You're in danger right now. Follow my directions very closely. It's very exciting. I liked it. It's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. We're back to Silas. We still don't know what the hell the keystone is. No, but we're going to get, I think, do we get his backstory here? We do get his backstory here. Do you want to talk about it? Because I only have one thing to say about it. Eh, just explain it to us. Okay. So apparently he is, he's an albino and he's French and um, he's from Marseille and his uh, dad was a drunk and would beat his mother for embarrassing him with an albino child and one day he killed the mother and so he killed his dad and then he lived in the basement. Just to clarify the dad killed the mom, so Silas killed his dad. Right, yes. Um, and then he lived... He was an outcast among the, the runaways, and so he lived in the basement in, of a dilapidated factory, eating stolen fruit and raw fish from the dock. Uh, he, a girl mocked him for being albino, so he nearly killed her, and then he was told to leave Marseille or go to juvenile prison. Okay, that's how I tradition. You know that way you tra traditionally... Uh use justice on juveniles yeah um, listen we're either gonna send you to prison for almost killing a girl or you can just go away <laughs> um and so they call him a ghost and a ghost with the eyes of a devil a lot of eye color mentions we talk about langdon's icy blue eyes and we talk about her olive green eyes uh sophie's and these devil red eyes so he felt like a ghost transparent floating from seaport to seaport 
Um, and he tried to steal stuff, and then he was caught by a pair of crewmen, and then he was triggered by the smell of the beer into a flashback of his oh, father's yeah. violence and uh, killed one of them and then nearly killed the other. And so was thrown into prison for 12 years. A very bad prison, like on an island somewhere. Um, yeah, it's some real... It's like Man the Azkaban shit. type thing. Yeah. yeah. And then... Mm. Here's you can see the uh, difference between Lena and I's level of culture. He's <laughs> <laughs> in Man in the Iron I, Mask. Yeah. Uh, a classic French novel by either Alexandre Dumas <laughs> or Victor Hugo. <laughs> Whichever one of those is right and not wrong. <laughs> um, at least I know who wrote my book. <laughs> um, anyway, so time passes and he apparently suffers sexual horrors yeah. during this time and um he uh, there's an earthquake and uh, a bunch of the prisoners are able to escape and then he is beaten for whatever oh he yeah, tries he, to sleep on a train yeah. gets thrown out gets beaten is saved somehow it wakes up with uh manuel arangarosa and saves his life from a thief or something mm-hmm. And then um, is named Silas. And this other his new life. prisoner that Aringarosa took in was trying to steal his silver candlesticks. Um, <laughs> I'm about to talk about Lame Miz in a, a second. A very tall, strong prisoner <laughs> who later would uh, be stepping up, looking at a piece of blue crockery on the road as a youth is trying to get at his coin underneath the feet of the thing and it's, uh, okay and that's about as much of that book as i read <laughs> <laughs> likewise um so i just really quick want to talk about this that's what the song look down was about it's about the crockery is it no <laughs> <laughs> i did watch the movie it was god awful <laughs> so bad okay i want to talk about this really quick okay so when this is happening this is published 2003 yes what year is it that this shit is happening? That he's like a, an orphan going from dock to dock? Because it's written like it's lame is. It's yeah. written like it's 1868 where you could just kind of like wander and be a vagabond and like called a ghost and there's no like uh, uh, foster services. Yeah, so this book takes place one year after Angels and Demons, which was published in 1998, we said? I think it's 99. 99. But... Yeah, 99. Or copyright 2000. Okay. And so let's just assume Angel Demons happens in 2000. This book's happening in 2001. Mm-hmm. It's a little unclear how long he's been at Opus Day, but I assume it's been, let's call it, let's be generous and call it 15 years. Okay. He was in, prison, he was in prison for 12, for 12 years, years. And he went to prison when he was 18. Yeah. So he was born like, what, mid 50s, 60s? Yeah. Hmm. Doesn't add up, does it? No. <laughs> it sounds like very, very Victorian, Dickensian, yeah. and it isn't. <laughs> to be fair, I everyone mean, had people had television. I was gonna say I don't know what Marseille is like, <laughs> but I assume it's not like Dickensian times. Anyway, but uh, Dan Brown would like it to be, so we're just gonna move on. Yeah. Well, now it's time. Um, I guess it's possible we'll have new re- new listeners now that we're doing the most famous book that's ever been written. That's so. Right. Uh, one of our traditions here is the halfway point to read six entries from Dan Brown's first published work under the name Danielle Brown, 187 Men to Avoid, a listicle for which he was paid a 
$65,000 or $120,000, a bunch of fucking money, too much money. So much money. Okay. I forget how much it is. 31, men with plastic houseplants. I think it's fine. I don't like it, but whatever. I wouldn't avoid a man for having plastic yeah, houseplants. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I've never had any, but like... Unless he has plants. You know. I'm not good at keeping plants alive. <laughs> 32, men with imitation zebra car seat covers. Hmm. It's tacky, but also, yeah. you know, a character choice. Yeah, I'm okay with it. This one is indefensible. 33, men who pee in the shower. Indefensible which direction? I think a lot of people pee in the shower. Thank I don't thank, think that makes God. you an awful person. No, I mean, it's the same fucking plumbing and shit, I think. It's yeah. not like it circulates back into your drinking water. Right. It's... Plenty of, pe- of perfectly fine people pee in the shower. Yeah. Um, 34. Men who insist they'd be happy to take a male birth control pill if one existed. It's a weird turn. I don't under like I don't understand the problem with this one. Like, I think he's a male feminist. I mean, I well, I mean, I get the. I did air quotes. Sure, for that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like, what would be the problem with that? I, not not with not, not with not with quotation mark male feminists, which are like a, a classic trope problem person. Yeah. But like, I don't know. I feel like. It's fine by me. I don't care. 35. Men who wake up at night screaming, how was I to know she was only 15? Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, yes, avoid that person, but also, also Danielle. How was I to know? That classic trope of the Victorian gentleman <laughs> who was like, that's not a phrasing you use. In the middle of the night, you wake up in the middle how of the night. How was I supposed to how know? How was I to know? <laughs> How was I to know, my darling? Uh, but yeah, I, I feel safe avoiding that person. Yeah, very gross. Okay, last one, n- number 36. Men who pop wheelies. It's a, that's in quotes. Pop wheelies. Popping wheelies is fucking sweet. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's fucking dope. Definitely do that. Just because Dan Brown could never do it doesn't mean you should avoid those men. Anyway, good uh, riddance. Chapter 11. Riddle me this. If I were to ask you, what's the French word for a joke? What would you tell me? <laughs> Blague. Yeah, not... Uh, plaisanterie. Une plaisanterie. Uh, yeah, a yeah. numeric joke. I mean, maybe Sophie Neveu is a sesquipedalian asshole. Who knows? It's Bezoufache that says that. Well, he says it... I think she said it first. Because... I think I think she's just listening to him, and he's like, "On plaisanterie numérique," because uh, she's like, "Oh, c'est un uh, plaisanterie numérique." Okay, got it. Um, and so it turns out that the numbers, when unscrambled and just placed into ascending order, form the Fibonacci sequence, uh, the most famous mathematical sequence. I have a question. What's up? Is like just one, two, three, four, five, a mathem- mathem- mathematical sequence? It is. It's an, it's an arithmetic sequence. So You should know that as an SAT instructor. I should. That's all Sophie came to say. Yeah. And even so though she actually just came to give Robert a secret message. And Sophie's like, this is what I have for you. And the captain's like, well, you better have more. And she was like, well, I never. And she storms out. Um, and then... be storming. Yeah. <laughs> Bitches be storming. Um, Bezufesh is upset because the U.S. Embassy is about to get involved, and that's going to like mess with his whole situation. There was a political cartoon published in 
Paris match of Fash as a police dog trying to bite an American criminal, but unable to reach because it was chained to the U.S. Embassy. That's how often Bezu Fash gets foiled in interrupting. Um, it's like, what, businessmen trying to hire underage prostitutes That's and right. stuff? Students in, uh, American exchange students with drugs, uh, shoplifting, destruction of property. Yeah, There's like a serious... Uh, slope of seriousness of crime we get i put shop <laughs> like i don't think the embassy is going to get involved to stop him from prosecuting a shoplifter right uh depending on what college kid was doing illegal drugs at a discotheque in paris who knows <laughs> who knows but like the businessmen doing underage prostitutes that's pretty bad that's very bad I don't like it's, that. it's kind of like a jaywalking shoplifting and arson yeah. thing yeah but fash isn't mad about it because it's like a travesty of justice he's mad that it's an emasculation of the judicial police there's a lot of genitals in this book oh yeah oh yeah isn't there later later don't we go to a cathedral and they talk about like the clitoris and the oh, i think so opening? i think so okay there's yeah. a whole chalice thing <laughs> uh anyways uh fash has kind of lost his momentum in his interrogation of robert and so he lets him have a bathroom break because Langdon says that he's received bad news that a friend has died and he's going to go to the embassy and fly home to see to his friend. And so uh, Fash is like, oh, go collect yourself in the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And so Langdon goes all the way. So just a note of architecture. So there's um, the portcullis that's come down, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's uh, some... It's It's just one long building. So... The end of it, like partway down it is uh, the dead curator. And then further down it at the dead end side is the bathroom. Yes. So where he's walking, there's no exit, mm -hmm. really. Um, so he goes down there um, and... Fash goes to go chew out Sophie Niveau. Right. Yeah. So he goes back to his office and Cole is there and... He's like, so where is she? And he's, they were like, she's with IDK. you, right? And no one knows where Sophie Collet is, or Sophie Nouveau is. Um, and Robert Langdon's in the bathroom. Yeah, and, and, they know. and then it turns out Sophie's also in the bathroom. Not yet, not yet. What? She comes in after him to the uh, bathroom. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Robert's in the bathroom. He's like, oh my God, I'm in danger. What's going on? What's going on? He splashes cold water on his face, which everyone does in movies. Um, Sophie Nouveau enters, green eyes flashing fear, uh, eye color mention, and then we get kind of a previously on the Da Vinci Code. Uh, we have a paragraph where it's like, only minutes ago, Langton had listened to her phone message, thinking the arrived cryptop, like, here's the message, and she's here, and we just read that chapter, man. Yeah. Like, but whatever. Um, we also get a new description of Sophie, mm -hmm. who, um, in the fluorescent lights, she was surprised to see her strong air actually radiated from unexpectedly soft features. Only her gaze was sharp, and the juxtaposition conjured images of a multi-layered Renoir portrait, veiled but distinct, with a boldness that somehow retained its shroud of mystery. That's right. 
doesn't mean anything it's all bullshit no it's all it's, it's all bullshit sophie is out of breath because she stormed out of there and then like hid <laughs> for a second and then like ran back in oh she's so cool <laughs> I know, she's the best there are some like truly silly hijinks level hiding things happening in the next couple of chapters it's starting with, starting with sophie storming out hiding like behind the statue of Someone, I was going to say David, but he's not, he's in Florence. Yeah. Hiding behind a statue, posing the same way as it, so that fashion knows when she walks past. And then she runs to the bathroom. <laughs> she has to slide under a thing to yeah. get there. Um, so she's like, they're tracking you. There's a little tracking device in your pocket. And we've got to get out of here. We've got to escape. And he's like, why would I run? I'm not guilty. Mm-hmm. Oh, we don't, sorry. Um, turns out that Robert Langdon is Fash's number one suspect in this case. Because there was initially a fourth line of text in that uh, number inscription. It went the numbers, O Draconian Devil, O Lame Saint. And then below that, P.S. Find Robert Langdon. So Fash's plan had been when Robert was like, why wouldn't he just write his murderer's name? Was to be like, <laughs> exactement. <laughs> and then just like pull up this picture and be like ha ha uh, but he didn't get to do it and it sucked because that would have been so cool it would have been um maybe more inspector Clouseau than uh poirot but <laughs> yeah um so and, okay sorry go ahead yeah so the next chapter is it's not really a cliffhanger it's a direct continuation of Landon being like but i didn't do it and um then Sophie's basically like Fash is determined to get him and he's, he's the only suspect because he doesn't want the media to make fun of him. And hilariously, Sophie has a comment on American versus French law enforcement. This is not American television, Mr. Langton. In France, the laws protect the police, not criminals. I just wrote law. <laughs> you know, America's notoriously criminal-friendly justice system where and just like... hostile. It, it, yeah, like the police are constantly getting fucked over by our stupid legal system that just has no respect for them and just lets criminals ride high on the hog. <laughs> sort of true if you're talking white-collar criminals. Oh, yeah. But uh, not murderers so much. Right. Uh, oh, uh, and the P.S. find Robert Langdon is for her. Yes. She is and, P.S. And also the Vitruvian Man is for her. Yes. Because it's her favorite Da Vinci drawing and Langdon's like why would Jacques Saunier know your favorite Da Vinci drawing or write a message to you and here we dive back into Angels and Demons well before that (laughs) uh Sophie and Jacques Saunier apparently had some kind of special relationship Langdon studied the beautiful young woman before him well aware that aging men in France often took young mistresses even so Sophie Naveau is a quote kept woman somehow didn't seem to fit Smart women can't be mistresses, apparently. It's true. <laughs> um, and then he learns that P.S. stands for Princess Sophie. Um, and then his whole theory of her as his mistress gets screwed up. He's like, oh, you knew when you were a little girl? And, <gasps> he was my grandfather. I cannot operate on this cryptographer. She is my granddaughter. <laughs> Um, Thanks for coming to episode one of Angels and Demons again. Um, (laughs) Well, that was different because that was her dad. This one's her granddad. Right, yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, chapter 14. And Vittoria and her dad were close, whereas Sophie Naveau and her grandfather had a falling out 10 years ago. They were estranged, yeah. She's 32 years old. 32 years old. To make it not gross. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Robert Lane's described as mid-40s. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Ancient. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening in chapter 14? In chapter 14, it's just more of what happened between her... Oh, no, 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 mm-hmm. no, no. It's, um... People talking about Fashe, Fash, um, and how badly he needs this arrest. And people, he was, he like spent the whole budget on like crazy technology and like high profile arrests. And he happened. lost his personal fortune by <laughs> investing money in the technology craze. The technology craze a few years back. And he lost his shirt. And Fash is a man who only wears <laughs> the finest shirts. Uh, he is Hercule Poirot. Uh, except like bad yeah. at his job. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and then at the end of this chapter, they get a call from the director of the cryptography department, and uh, something is fishy about the way Sophie Niveau came. That's right. Back to Silas, leaving a black Audi. Yep. At the... This is like the third brand name of gun we get in this fucking book. That's right. We keep getting gun brand names, and I don't care. Well, we get cars, too. We just don't get the exact kind of Audi this is. It's true. Um, he's at Place Saint-Sulpice, and uh, he sees some teenage uh, prostitutes. Uh, what their nubile bodies do to Silas. Oh, I don't want to say it. <laughs> Why don't you say it? Uh, they send a familiar longing to his loins. <laughs> his thigh flexed instinctively, causing the barbed silice belt to cut painfully into his flesh. Loins. He, there was a lot of loins with oh, re- regard to the hostile scene. He's been, he's been for 10 years now. He's been with Opus Dei, uh, faithfully denying himself all sexual indulgence, okay. even self-administered. So he's 40. Yes. So he's 40 in 2003, which means he was born in 63. Yep. The summer of love. And <laughs> nope, he didn't... it was not. And he didn't, he didn't leave <gasps> home until... What if he is the reincarnated spirit of noted Catholic... <laughs> John F. Kennedy. Sure Deceased like eleven for nineteen sixty three. I think it's twenty five. Sounds true. Okay. Um. Anyway, he's got a vow of celibacy. It says he's decided he's denied himself uh, all sexual indulgence, even self administered, which flew the hell over my head what? when I was a kid and I oh, read yes. this. Yeah, it's a welcome change from the rapey has a scene like that's true there is some of that in this paragraph though as well it's gross considering the poverty from which he had come and the sexual horrors he had endured in prison celibacy was a welcome change yeah um you have to have like a sexually twisted creepy dramatic murder zealot to make these books i think that's kind of it for this chapter (laughs) he knocks on the door yeah which there was also a chapter that was the same as this in angels and demons where the assassin knocked on the door and that was the end of a chapter yeah yeah or the door began to open yeah yeah his ghost white fist can we stop we know he's (laughs) albino okay so uh they're back in the bathroom and so she had a falling out when she was 22 with her grandfather because she walked in on something she was not supposed to see. Ten he... years ago, the exact same amount of time that Silas and Opus Day. This book is full of parallels. It surely is. Probably not on purpose. No. Um, 
So his his and she tried to explain and she was like, please leave me alone. Some Camerlengo Pope echoes there of let me explain. Yes. Yeah. So Nier wanted to explain the cause of their falling out to Sophie. Yeah. He was trying to get back in touch for a long time and she was having none of it. She was, you know, flying high as a cryptologist. So. Yes. Um, she talks about how they used to do uh, cryptograms and crosswords in the newspaper. And mm-hmm. I don't think Le Monde has a crossword. I looked it up. I couldn't find any evidence of a Le Monde uh, crossword. I was going to yeah, say I was worried about French, that. Um, also, her parents and brother died in a car accident when she was young. And so she was raised by her grandfather. Her grandma also died in the same car accident. It's going to come back up later. Cumberlingo Sophie. Yes. Nobody in Dan Brown books is allowed to have any family. <laughs> Langdon did until he was old. He had like a normal upbringing, right? I mean, his dad was kind of a dick, but that's yeah. Like... He had absentee parents, so it's like he didn't have parents. <laughs> um, there's another eye color mention. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, earlier today, Sophie's grandfather tried to call her for the first time in a while and left a message saying that. They were in danger, and he wanted to respect her wishes to not see him, but he was worried about her safety, and so could she please come see him? And she's like, oh, that pathetic old man. He just wants to see me before he dies, because uh, Sophie is really heartless. Yeah, that's right. She's like, my disgust grew when I thought he was trying to like rope me into yeah. talking to him. So she's talking to Langdon, and she's like, so we got to uh, bust out of here, and I got to get you to the embassy so you're safe. And he's like, why can't you just tell Fash that, like, this was meant for you? And she's like, we will, once you're safely in the embassy, because otherwise you'll just be, like, locked in jail for weeks, awaiting extradition. And in the meantime, who knows what's going on? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's basically it, right? Yeah. And she, she asks, like, hey, is there any reason why you should be... Uh, a suspect and he says no and she's yeah like, and like she, she's trying to convince him to run and he's like i don't know and then eventually she decides for him and that's the end of the chapter yeah um there's a bit here where she's like she needs langdon for herself because he has some kind of information that she yeah. needs apparently uh so he is a declaration of independence very exciting <laughs> um and so they can't jump out of this window in the bathroom because they'll break their legs so they've got to figure out a new way yeah to escape okay and so Fash is mad Sophie's not answering her cell phone now that he knows that she's up to no good. Um, I don't have any notes for this chapter. Yeah, he learns that Sonier is her grandfather, and the cryptographers tell him that it's the Fibonacci sequence, which he already knows. But then an alarm goes off in the bathroom. Someone's broken the window. Uh-oh, Langdon's, uh, his GPS dot, it comes to a stop on the ground outside. He must have jumped and died in the middle of the street because it's a 40-foot jump. That's right. Um, uh, oh, really quick. She wasn't sent to no. the FBI. No, she walked into the room where the picture was, looked at it for a second, was turned around upset. and walked out. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's it. And so now they're sprinting to the bathroom. Uh, and then it turns out, oh, wait, the dot is moving. Mm-hmm. Faster, faster, faster. Yeah. You know? Uh, maybe he's in a car. It's turning. It's on uh, Pont de Saint-Père. Yeah. And um, it's, so he's probably on some truck that has a tarp on it. Yeah, he's looking at the window. I think he looks out the window and sees the truck he thinks that Langdon's on. Mm-hmm. And so because Langdon ran, he is guilty as charged. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but also because Langdon ran, they're not going to go check the bathroom now. (laughs) Right. Meanwhile, Langdon and Sophie are hiding... Behind statues, <laughs> doing the poses of the statues. No, they 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 have not behind statues. They're just standing on plinths in the middle of the room, very still, looking like statues. <laughs> and then the police run right past them. Okay, they're not really they're not doing either. Of no, this things, is so. it's this is this is um, Scooby Doo and the Mystery of the Louvre. That's what it is. But they're hiding and watching Fush like run past them, um, and then they're like, "Okay, cool, we're we're free now." So. But how did that GPS dot get in the truck then? If oh, Robert Langdon and Sophie Naveau are still inside the Louvre. Well, I'm glad you asked. So she puts the dot in the soap in the bathroom because they have bar soap in the Louvre bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. The French are very classy. <laughs> it's gross. I don't want to touch a bar soap that like a million tourists have touched anyway. Well, not that many touch it because it doesn't last that long. Okay. And also it's soap. It's clean. Use your head. <laughs> And so she she breaks the window with um, a trash can and then throws the soap uh, into the truck from which is like stopped underneath the window there. That's it. Yep. Uh, well, the very last sentence of this chapter is um, a really incredible thing that is very quickly turned around on us and proven not to be true. Yeah, yeah. Very disappointingly so. Uh, Langdon decided not to say another word all evening. Sophie Naveau was clearly a hell of a lot smarter than he was. And I was just like, please don't. Please just shut up and let <laughs> don't Sophie totally do what she my needs heart to do. Brown. <laughs> don't make me think we're not going to have to read him the rest of the fucking night. <laughs> Sophie's a G. I love her. Yeah. And so chapter 19, um, Sandrine is kind of letting Silas into the church and letting him walk around. Yeah, and she's like, oh, it's much more beautiful in the daytime. And he's like, I know, but I like barely had any time. And here's the, you obviously have powerful friends. Yeah. And she said, can I give you a tour? And he says, a tour is unnecessary. I can show myself around. Give me a minute to pray, you know. And she's like, and he's like, you know, I woke you up in the middle of the night. Why don't you, uh, why don't you get yourself some sleep? And she's like, are you sure? Uh, so she goes away. Well, she goes to hide in the church balcony. So much hiding. Where she normally sleeps. But also, um, the sudden dread in her soul made it hard to stay still. For a fleeting instant, she wondered if this mysterious visitor could be the enemy they had warned her about. And if tonight she would have to carry out the orders she had been holding all these years. She decided to stay in the dark and watch his every move. Mm -hmm. So, Sister Sandrine is on some secret agent shit. Hell, yes. Oh my god. I'm so happy that there's like an old woman who's not like a withered crone or like a dying tourist or whatever. Yeah, like... no, she's, she, she rules. Okay. Um, Last chapter. Yeah. So, just like in Angels and Demons, in this chapter we get another flashback to Dan Brown teaching a lecture where we are again reminded that he's the fucking worst professor. Before that happens, we are... are the promise is immediately broken. He like immediately yes. starts talking. Which is, <laughs> come on, you know? Okay, but yeah, we do get, because um, she she mentions the number fee. Yes. And so he has a flashback to when he was teaching fee to his students. You know, There's like the There's also the would. incredibly annoying stylistic choice of every time the word fee is said, spelling it in all caps, instead of either using the Greek letter or putting it like in lowercase italics. It's, it's like CERN. It's so stupid. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, Langdon's teaching a class about it. 
1.618. Who can tell you what this number is? A long-legged math major in the back raised his hand, but this isn't a sexy co-ed. Uh, that's the number fee. He pronounced it fee. <laughs> <laughs> nice job, Stetner, Langdon said. Everyone, meet fee. And um, Stetner. Well, so he refers to all his students by their last name. You know, well, how, you know how professors do. Sort of. He refers to Stetner by his last name because Stetner is a man and therefore worthy of respect and having his name remembered. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, a little later on in the lecture... A biology uh, major in the front row, mind you. Yes. And because he's, he's saying that fee is everywhere in nature. And so... Hold on, said a young one in the front row. I'm a bio major and I've never seen this divine proportion before. And uh, would you believe that Langdon doesn't know her name and doesn't say it at all? <laughs> I would believe it. Or as he says Stetner's name like a hundred fucking times. Yeah. Um, so he just couldn't think of a last name to call this girl. But yeah. Dan. <laughs> also, so this bio major, she's in an undergrad symbology class. <laughs> And so is this math major. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, that's that's not even my concern. <laughs> it's my it's it's my like the thing people do when they're like, oh, if you're majoring this thing in your undergrad, you know everything about everything related to the field, right? So uh, first, he asks her, have you ever studied the relationship between females and males in the honeybee community? And she's, yeah, the females always outnumber the males, and that is apparently by a portion of fee. And she's like, no way. And then. Um, his next slide is a spiral seashell, and the bio major is like, oh, yeah, that's a nautilus, a cephalopod mollusk that pumps gas into its chambered shell to adjust its buoyancy, she said, not at all with Wikipedia open on her laptop. Right. <laughs> um, that adjusts... Who, who, who gives a shit about the gas? <laughs> who cares? Um, She's the worst. Yeah. Anyways, then he shows them fee in art. Um, well, and sunflowers, and then art. Yeah, yeah. And brings up Da Vinci, and makes a dick joke. Yeah, and Be, and who laughs at the dick joke? It's the football players, because mm-hmm. all jocks are dumb. That's they don't right. major in anything except for football. Is he is he teaching one of those like you have to take this so you can graduate classes? I think so. Or he's just that popular a lecturer because everyone likes his lectures where he shows you slides and says, see, that's the same number, same number, same number for a half hour, we're told. <laughs> he goes a half hour of showing people examples of fee used in art for his symbology class. Oh, man. Fee's not a symbol. This reminds me of my like Anthro 3 AC class where it was like just anyone who needed to take an anthropology class was there. Like there's a bio major in there. There's a math major in there. There's football yeah. players in there. Like we all just need to graduate, Robert. Like <laughs> Anyway. And so finally, now that he's told them all about fee in the exact same way a thousand times, just showing them here, you see these two things, the ratio between is fee. These two things, fee. These two things, fee. (laughs) And like his students every fucking time are like, no, it cannot be fee. (laughs) And it doesn't seem like they're being sarcastic. Um, (laughs) No, it cannot be fee. uh, Then, so not just you insecure jocks. Uh, measure the distance from the tip of your head to the floor, then divide that by the distance from your belly button to the floor. Guess what number you get? Not fee! One of the jocks blurted out in disbelief. (laughs) He never Um, met a football player. Also, isn't it like not, isn't it like not true that every person will literally get exactly fee? That's kind of the thing about people is that you're all a little different. And so like some people, it's a little off. I think that's the case. Whereas Langdon says everyone's exactly made to the proportion of fee. Well, you know, Dan Brown is doing his best. Yeah. Um, 
Um, so he goes on to talk about the pentagram and yeah. the divine feminine. And the divine, when he mentions the divine feminine, all the girls in class beamed. You know, <laughs> bitches be beaming. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, anyway, we get to leave this awful, awful... Uh, oh, and then there's a Last sup- Supper ref. Yeah, he mentions the next lecture is going to be on the Last Supper, which, wouldn't you know it, uh, our next lecture from Dan from Robert Langdon's probably also going to be at the Last Supper. It's oh, going to be fascinating. So Langdon figures out that the Odraconian Devil Olame Saint is actually an anagram, um, because the Fibonacci sequence is out of order, and that's just a clue that the rest of it is out of order. Yeah, and Sophie's like, "Oh, come the jumble in the newspaper," uh, basically. <laughs> Uh, she says a code <laughs> a da vinci code um she doesn't say a da vinci code yeah. i did um what does an anagram to uh leonardo da vinci the mona lisa the declaration of independence <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of chapter 20 now that we're now we've been set upon our mystery on a on a on a on a, a highway to hell on a freight train of uh <laughs> anagrams and symbols and stuff there are hella anagrams in uh national treasure i'm excited to read the lost <laughs> symbols so we can watch that movie i'm excited to read national treasure <laughs> um do you have a grade for this section on dan brownness i think because this is the the, the seminal work i have to give it an a yeah he's woken up middle of the night Phone call, mysterious European man, you know, boom, we're in the action. These 20 chapters are for me the archetypal Dan Brown. This is A plus for Dan Brownness for me. It's like literally when I think of Dan Brown, I think of that anagram above the dead body on the floor of the Louvre. And I think about Silas standing there outside the gate shooting him. Yeah, the prologue. That's what I think about when I think about Dan Brown. Some important person is murdered and then Robert Layton is rudely awoken and... He's off, and then a beautiful but smart woman mm-hmm. comes along, and there's secret societies. So Dan Brown. It's it's perfect. It's perfect. Um, what about enjoyment? Enjoyment? I'm going to give it a B plus, A minus. I had a good time with it. I think I'm B minus. B minus? Okay. I enjoyed it. Uh, have you an angel for this section? Yes. And I have my a wild guess. <laughs> is Sophie. You thought it was going to be Sandrine? Yeah. Well, it was. it's close. Um, but I haven't seen Sandrine do her thing yet. Okay. You know, she hasn't jumped into action. That's true. I do like Sandrine, but I think I've seen more from Sophie today. She's really a G, and I, I respect that. She put, she put a tracker in soap. Who knew? To, yeah. Who, how do you even know there's soap in there? Anyway, <laughs> uh, my angel is the woman who is introducing Robert Lang to the lecture, because uh, I think he was genuinely, even though he likes it, I think he was also genuinely kind of embarrassed. He wasn't getting a talk about how smart and good he is at symbols. It was just like, look at this sexy hunk who's going to talk to us here at the American University of Paris. Um, and I like to think that she did it not because she's trying to flirt with him, but just because she like actively hates him. I think in my head canon, she's a rival researcher and she's trying to undermine his authority. And um, it's possible I'm reading into it a little bit, but that's why I like her. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. My, am I supposed to do my demon now? 
sure. What, do, who's your demon? Do you have, do you have a demon? Uh, I will, but I'm you're done with yours. <laughs> Damn it. Um, can it be Victoria for popping up again? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't need that. I was, I was, I had washed my hands of that final scene. <laughs> washed my Angels hands, scrubbed my brain. <laughs> right. And he comes back and he's like, have you mounted her? And I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Kalei might be my angel just for, have you mounted her? Because <laughs> that shit is funny. <laughs> yeah, I think my demon is going to be the boring choice of Fash. I kind of like him, but I think he's also like a kind of archetypal problem cop. I need I need more of him. You know, we're hearing a lot about how like dynamic he is from his like coworkers and stuff yeah. and his reputation. I need to see it. I need to see, show don't tell. Yes. Show don't show, tell. tell. Cuz like all we see is him being like the kind of pig-headed asshole cop who like has his suspect and like usually it's probably a poor person mm-hmm. um but in this case it's sexy professor robert langdon and he's going to go to the ends of the earth to prove this asshole is the one who did it regardless of any evidence that exonerates him and like that's pretty shitty police work fuck that guy yeah yeah agree do we do anything else at the end of the chapter no but you should follow us on twitter at dan brown code pod <laughs> you did it da- at dan brown code pod on twitter you can follow me, Lena, at Lena Jamili. That's spelled L-I-N-A-J-E-M-I-L-I. You can follow me at Wishbone Ulysses. And uh, you can find us on Facebook. Please rate and review the episodes. It really does help us out. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll see you on the flippity flip. Yeah, this is the most best-selling no- this, this is the best-selling novel of all time let's make it the best downloaded podcast of all time oh yeah oh yeah coming for you um serial <laughs> next time we're gonna read chapters 21 to 40 of the same book and this one you should read along with us it's fun it, it is fun and then we can all watch the poor movie together send, send us emails and talk to us about it <laughs> please sometimes i look at our email i think lena probably does more regularly yeah um yeah i haven't been great about emails recently but i will be better sorry (laughs) and have a wonderful day bye